is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 69 is Jungian analyst and author Jason E. Smith on Cape Ann, near Boston, Massachusetts. After receiving his undergraduate degree from the theater program at the University of British Columbia, he worked for several years as an actor in his hometown of Vancouver, Canada. It was during this time that he became acquainted with Jungian psychology and decided to pursue a career as a psychotherapist. He went on to attend Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California, and received a master's degree in counseling psychology with an emphasis in depth psychology. He then relocated to Massachusetts and began analytic training at the C.G. Jung Institute Boston, earning a diploma in analytical psychology, the degree of a Jungian analyst. In his 20 years of clinical experience, Jason has worked in many settings. He has facilitated dream groups and taught classes and workshops on dream interpretation, run a support group for hospice workers, led career counseling groups, offering individual career counseling from a Jungian perspective, and has provided mental health and substance abuse counseling at a community mental health clinic in Gloucester. He is a past president of the C.G. Jung Institute Boston, now the C.G. Jung Institute of New England, where he continues to serve as a training analyst and faculty member in the analytic training program. He also has a private practice in Manchester-by-the-Sea, where he lives with his family. An article he had written around Thanksgiving of 2015, titled, Thank God I'm a Jungian, caught my eye, so I asked him if we could record an episode about it. His first book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, will be released this fall by Chiron Publications. Those topics and more are the subjects of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you'll find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, August 5th, 2020, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Jason. Hi, Laura. Thanks for inviting me to this conversation. So you are in New England, and you trained with the C.G. Jung Institute in Boston there. And I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about that program. Yeah. um, Well, I guess one of the first things to say about it is that uh, it's – become a new entity over the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Boston group has been around for just over 40 years. Um, and it's actually been composed of two different uh, groups, two different organizations. One is the New England Society of Jungian Analysts, and the other being the C.G. Young Institute of Boston. And... Uh, Earlier this summer, July 1st, uh, the two organizations merged. You have two organizations and you have uh, a a lot of repeating of uh, roles and responsibilities. So you have two presidents, two treasurers, two secretaries, and that uh, sort of became uh, unsustainable 
uh, over time, and and we've now kind of streamlined and become the one organization. So it's now the C.G. Jung Institute of New England. Um, and it's, you know, it's an, it's an interesting and I think a unique program amongst the, the various institutes. We are one of very few institutes that, as well as accepting um, uh, people with strong clinical backgrounds, we also accept people from other backgrounds, arts, uh, and uh, there are people who have been through, uh, they've been lawyers and various professions. Uh, and I think what it does is it gives uh, a nice depth and breadth to the program. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you have to do, uh, it, it makes it harder in some ways. As you, you know, when you enter the program, you have to do uh, your own clinical training on top of doing the analytic training. Uh, but it's a very rich program, and it's a program with a lot of history, uh, started by a group of um, analysts that trained in Zurich uh, and has grown and developed. Uh, we had started by four analysts, and there are now over 80 analysts in the, in the Boston group. Mm -hmm. So it's a very vital group. So not requiring previous clinical training – um, by the candidates is kind of in keeping with the original Jungian tradition, isn't it? Where you could have a postgraduate degree in pretty much anything and be accepted into, say, the Jung Institute in Zurich. Well, that's right. I mean, it, it was an organization that was based on the Zurich model. That's mm -hmm. uh, uh, how it was started. And that's the intention, is to have this very rich cross-fertilization of disciplines and backgrounds. Um, you know, Jung's psychology draws on so many areas of life. It's not limited yes. just to clinical knowledge, but it's, it's, it reaches into all of these domains and, and tries to bring uh, a fullness to to the understanding of, of human experience. Mm -hmm. So you trained at, or you attended, I should say, Pacifica Graduate Institute in California, but then you decided to pursue your training as a Jungian analyst there in Boston. So how did that come about for you? Uh, well, I had been, uh, so I had been working as an actor in the theater and uh, had become increasingly interested in psychology and particularly Jung's psychology. And I went to Pacifica, uh, which was a, a wonderful experience uh, and uh, uh, a really excellent training and a really excellent clinical training. And uh, while I was there, I met my wife, my now wife, uh, who was from the, uh, the New England area. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, in Pacifica, you fly in from wherever you're living at the time. And so you're, you're meeting people from all over the country. Uh, and so that brought me 
uh, eventually to the East Coast, to Boston. Um, and I wanted to take it to the next level of my training and, and keep going. And I had done uh, uh, some work with a, an analyst and then uh, had decided that I, w I wanted to do the analytic training. So I applied for the program and uh, just kept going. Mm -hmm. And how many years were you training in Boston? Uh, so I trained for a total of about 10 years in Boston. Um, it's a, it's a pretty extensive training. Uh, you know, the minimum requirements in the program are something like, uh, five or six years. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and you go through sort of two stages of training. The first stage being, um, uh, more of the theory and the sort of the academic background and the second stage being a, a real clinical focus and uh, focus on cases and analytic work. Um, and you go at your own pace and because it's a program that's not just an academic program. It's a program that's not just about the acquisition of knowledge. But it's really a program about uh, becoming an analyst and, and, and being, uh, changed and, uh, transformed through the process. So you are your own, uh, project, so to speak, uh, as you go through that. Mm -hmm. And it takes generally as long as it takes. And for yes. me, it was about 10 years. I love what you just said, and it's a great reminder that it's not just about the acquisition of knowledge, it's about the experience. And I find it interesting, uh, just to back up a little bit, you said that you were an actor, you worked as an actor, and you are now the third analyst that I know of that I've interviewed for this podcast that had a career as an actor. I had Margaret mm. Clank on, right, yeah. and Mark Sabin in England. Hmm. Um, so all three of you began as actors and then became interested in Jungian psychology and are now Jungian analysts. I find yeah. that interesting. For me, it's a natural progression. If you're, uh, you're an actor, you're interested in what it means to be a human being. Mm. So it's a very natural unfolding. You want to understand what makes people tick, what makes various characters tick, why people do what they do. Um, and that's the part that I got hooked on and, and just wanted to keep following. Mm -hmm. So this article that you wrote, uh, you posted it in 2015 around Thanksgiving, really caught my eye because it centers around a quote attributed to mm -hmm. Jung. And I believe it is something he really said because the source of the quote, which is, thank God I am Jung and not a Jungian, is in Barbara Hanna's book. Her book mm. titled Jung, His Life and Work, a Biographical Memoir. It was originally published in 1976 and reprinted in 1991. It's available new and also in Kindle, and I'll provide a link to it in the show notes. But it was written by Barbara Hanna, who was a pupil, a friend, uh, and a close associate of Jung's for more than 30 years. So she really yeah. knew him. 
Yeah. And she worked as a training analyst for a time at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich. And toward the end of her life, she lived with Marie-Louise von Franz in Bollingen at Jung's suggestion. And I actually visited their grave site um, in 2015 in mm. Kusnacht there. Um, they share a grave site. And there I have pictures of it on the website. So she mentions this, that, that Jung said this. And I'm going to stop talking now and let you tell us about that quote. And my understanding is that uh, this quote comes up of Jung's around the idea that uh, his immediate followers at the time are interested in um, starting up uh, an institute around Jung's psychology, around the training of uh psychologists and psychotherapists who work in a Jungian vein. And let me just jump and in. This was around the 1940s, right? I think so. Okay. I think so. It's been a while since I've uh, looked at the, uh, at that book and at the, that biography, but yes, it's, it's, it's around that time. It's sort of towards the end of Jung's life. And, uh, you know, he's concerned about some kind of dogmatism mm -hmm. creeping in. And so he makes this quote, uh, which uh, as a Jungian, it, it's a little awkward, right? Thank yeah. God I am Jung and not a Jungian. Um, it, it brings in this element of... Uh, uh, the awkwardness and also, you know, the, the potential for uh, almost like an inferiority complex around being a Jungian, right? Uh, right? Because Jung has this ambivalence about it. Uh, thank God I'm Jung and not a Jungian, as if to be a Jungian is, uh, you know, something to be dismissed. And, and that's tricky. I, I found it personally uh tricky, especially as I was coming to the end of my training, right? And I'm at this place of taking on this identity of being a Jungian analyst. Um, and when you do that, you know, we were just talking about the training program in Boston. You know, you do that, you don't do it um, because it's easy and you don't do it uh, uh, for uh, really for prestige or anything like that. You, you do it because you're called to do it. Uh, and so here I am, I have this calling. It's taken me into training for 10 years. You go into these very deep and difficult, uh, sometimes dark, sometimes exhilarating places in yourself and you you're coming to the end of training, and then you have this thing hanging over you. I'm going to be a Jungian, but what about this quote? Uh, Thank God I'm Jung and not a Jungian. What do you do with this? Uh, and I, I really had to wrestle with that. Um, and, you know, I understand where it comes out of. It comes out of this 
fear of dogmatism. We were just talking about how when you are doing this work, when you're doing analysis, when you're training to be an analyst, it's not an acquisition of knowledge. It's not an acquisition of a thing. It's an experience. It's a participation in something that's transformative. And I think that's central. In fact, I know it is central to, to Jung's uh, thinking and to his work. It's not the thing. It's not the name. It's the experience that matters. And so he's really concerned about uh, it becoming just this sort of thing that people either believe or don't believe or they uh, are attached to or they disagree with. He's trying to point to an experience. And if people are just Jungians and they take on the, uh, the terminology and the ideas and the words without engaging in the actual work and experience, then it's going to be meaningless. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something I've not really been able to articulate with being online and my online presence. I was online before I started the podcast, meaning on social media. And I don't want to be part of groups. I'm not part of any Jungian groups or Jungian reading groups or any of that. And what I see and the criticisms that I receive are people who want to debate me about what something means. And yeah, so I love what you said about it's not about that. It's about the experience and doing the work. And that's where Jungian analysis comes in. And that's why this podcast is interviews with Jungian analysts, because I want to talk to Jungian analysts about the work that they do, and not just talk to Jungian scholars or people who have read Jung. Right, right. You know, the, the, the work itself, uh, the, the writings, the terminology, it's all interesting, it's all fascinating, and there's a whole area you can go into. But the experience is another thing altogether. And, you know, all of the terminology, uh, things like shadow and anima, animus, the self, all of that, uh, they are pointers to experiences. And uh, you need to have some kind of language to communicate. Mm -hmm. and, and Jung writes about this. He writes about this in one of his letters. He says, uh, you know, all things are as if they are. Uh, you know, the words that he uses, he says, I use the words anima, animus. I use all these words, but they are really just uh, ways of speaking about the abyss of the unknowable. We don't know what we're talking about. We need language to talk about what's unknowable. Mm -hmm. You know, he, the, the core of Jung's work is that we're dealing with the psyche, but he says, you know, the psyche is the densest darkness it is possible to imagine. 
we actually don't know what the psyche is because the the thing that we use to understand the psyche is the psyche. Yes. It's both object and subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's like an eye trying to look into itself. It can't do that. Or the tip of a finger trying to touch itself. It's not possible. We need mirrors and we need images and we need language. But the language is not it. The language is just a kind of indicator so that we can move towards what the actual experience is. I think that when we talk about, thank God I'm Jung and not a Jungian, he's wanting to hold open that, uh, that element of the unknowable, that element of uh, the mystery. He doesn't want that to get locked down. You know, somewhere he talks about uh, uh, the difference between the experience one has, say, of a dream and the interpretation of a dream. And uh, he says, you know, the experience of a dream is very different than having what he calls a tepid rehash set down on paper. Mm. The experience is to live it and to participate in it, to feel it, to encounter it, to be changed by it. Um, and, and that's what he doesn't want to be lost in the creation of Jungian psychology. So, you know, where people are uh, critical of uh, someone identifying as a Jungian, and they bring up that quote. It's a great quote that people like to sort of hit each other over the head with. Yeah. Um, they're they're, you know, they're pointing to something that is worth being aware of. You know, the 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 possibility of being too rigid, being too uh, uh, orthodox, uh, being too literal, being too fundamentalist, you know, that that fundamentalist tendency can creep into anything. Um, And as long as we know we're holding the the work, we're holding the concepts uh, lightly as symbols, as indicators, uh, then we're we're in the right territory. Mm-hmm. We're not locked down. In the paragraph in Barbara Hanna's book, right after uh, that quote, she said, this attitude was no late acquisition. It was with him from the beginning of his practice. It was the individual patient that counted. Did the theory and the name stand up to that test or not? So... It's about the individual and not about not about what. So what what is what is the challenge to that? Well, yeah. So that's that's important. Jung emphasizes the individual, the individual uh, path. And he's wary of the collective, right? He's wary of the group. And part of the reason that he's wary of the group is that he's lived through two world wars and he knows that groups can become destructive. 
that in the throes of a kind of mass psychology, uh, the the individual gets lost and these destructive tendencies can come up. So he's very wary of the groups. However, there's a danger in uh, uh, throwing or thrusting the group into the shadow because we are social creatures. We are born into families. We are born into communities. We are born into cultures. Um, we are not separate from our surroundings. And, you know, Jung is also aware of this. He's aware of this. It's, he writes about this often. Uh, it's just interesting in this particular statement he emphasizes the individual and diminishes the group. But the truth is that he knows that you can't only be an individual. And he distinguishes between individuation and individualism. And the difference is that in individuation, there is a differentiation of the person, of the individual, but in relationship and in connection to the group. He, the person's not cut off from the, their particular group. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be cut off from the group uh, is dangerous. And if everybody's cut off from the group and it's only individuals, there's chaos. And so the group is important. And for me, as I was wrestling with this question, you know, what I recognized was the, the danger that I had was in being almost too much of an individual and in trying to, well, it being too much of an individual, but also trying to emulate and even uh, copy Jung, to be Jung, uh, to do what he did, to try to have the kinds of visions that Jung did, uh, to, to uh, bring into... Uh, existence, some new way of seeing things, the, the way that, that Jung had. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a, a, a temptation that, that many people experience. Uh, I've known a number of people who are uh, deeply into Jung and, um, you know, maybe they smoke a pipe the way Jung did. I mean, there are all of these ways that can creep in. Um, so for me, the, the issue was not so much being a Jungian, but to be Jung. And so this is where I, I, I kind of turned the phrase around for myself uh, to say that, thank God I'm a Jungian and not Jung. Because as a Jungian, I can benefit from the tradition. I can engage the tradition and I can allow it to find a, a particular expression in my life. 
Um, and so uh, I have a, a tradition I can draw on, but I can also recognize the, the, the uniqueness uh, that I am and, and together those two become a, a particular expression. And to me, that was, that was really helpful to recognize that uh, it wasn't about taking on an identity, but it was about kind of living forward a tradition and uh, allowing it to continue to, to grow and develop and evolve, which is what it's always doing. Mm-hmm. I like the part in your article where you say there are some wounds, some pains, some sufferings that cannot be healed by medicine or technology. And I think that's where Jungian analysis comes in. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about the importance of story. Story, image, and symbol are powerful things. Would you talk a little bit about story? Well, one of the ways that I think about that, you know, story, we live in stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are storytelling beings. Um, All of our, all of our particular points of view, our theories, our, our, our disciplines are in a sense just so many stories that we uh, we tell about the world. Um, we tell psychological stories about the world. We tell uh, stories through poetry. We tell stories through uh, the sciences. We tell stories through religion. Um, we are painting the world, the unknowable that that Jung talks about with a particular story, a way of trying to understand what it means to be here. And, you know, it's essential that we have a sense of ourselves that is more than just biological. Mm -hmm. You know, we love the metaphor of technology, the metaphor of the machine. We like to think of ourselves as machines, and we like to think of the brain as a computer. Um, You know, we talk about uh, life hacks and things like that. It's all computer language. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we do that, when that's our guiding metaphor, then we become the human machine and we think that you know it's just a matter of fixing this part or that part uh, through uh, through the the medical approach i don't think we're suggesting that that's not necessary but it's not the whole picture it's not the whole story it's not everything we need more than that would you say oh absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. i mean the, there's no question that uh, the medical approach saves lives. 
uh, and there is no question that science and the technology that's come from it, the knowledge that we have, there's no question that that uh, has improved our lives. Uh, it's extended uh, the lifespan of, of human beings. Uh, people who would have uh, fallen ill and died of diseases 20, 30 years ago survived them. Uh, so without question, it's vital. But the human being is more than that. The human being also needs meaning. Mm -hmm. They need to know not just that we're here, but why we're here. Why, why, uh, why is there life? What is the, the value of being in life? What is the, the meaning of an individual existence? And this is where the, the element of story comes in, the element of being related to life, being related to the world, being related to, uh, to our own existence. Jung talks about psychology, you know, one of his seminars is a group of his early students, and he's doing a seminar on uh, visionary and psychological art. Uh, a piece called Aurelia. And, and one of the things is a very interesting sequence. He talks about uh, the idea that people like to use psychology to get a name or a word for something, and then that's it. They've got it. And that's as far as they want to go. Uh, and he says this really interesting thing. He says, we have to always remember that psychology is only a stammering stopgap in order to be able to talk about life at all. And so what's important is not psychology or any of the stories that we have, uh, medicine, science, religion, the stories are one thing, but the, the, what we're pointing to is the experience of life and to have the experience of being alive. What allows us to feel uh, fully alive in the world uh, and in our life? And it's the story, it's the, the symbol, you know, the, I, this word story uh, maybe is better even thought of as symbol mm -hmm. uh, because it's the idea that there is something that points to something else beyond that ultimately cannot be talked about. Uh, and that's the experience of uh, being here. That's the experience of uh, of meaningfulness to to our existence. I want to go back a little bit to when we were talking about the individual and the group, and how we don't individuate alone. We need others. We need mirrors. And I just want to make sure we wrap that up. Where for Jung, it was the individual that was important. And yeah. the group 
though you were saying is necessary too. So how do you reconcile those two? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the, my, the, the book that uh, I wrote is called Religious But Not Religious. And what we're talking about here with the, the Jung's quote could almost be thought of as this idea of Jungian but not Jungian, right? Jungian in a sense as being part of a collective, but not Jungian as being too literal and too over-identified with the collective. But the, the truth is that none of us is a, a, a self-made individual, mm -hmm. right? None of us uh, gets to where we are without the experience and the wisdom and the knowledge uh, and the help of other people. This is certainly true in training. You know, when I went through training, I can't add up how many analysts were involved in my becoming an analyst. Mm -hmm. You know, I had my own personal analysts. I had committees that uh, I worked with, exam committees and evaluation committees. I had people who uh, advised me on uh, my papers and my thesis. I had people that I worked with uh, advising me on my clinical work, casework. Um, so there's all of these people involved in the process of becoming an analyst, not to mention all of the people that uh, I would read, you know, Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz and James Hollis and Donald Kalshed, all of these people, uh, we'd have people come in, the Murray Steins come in and speak to us as mm -hmm. candidates. Uh, so we're all initiated into our own sphere of life by others. And we need that. We need some place of orientation. And when the collective works, when the group works, when the institutions work, they are that place of orientation that then allows us our own free experiment with life, mm -hmm. with uh, a, a truth and a meaning that is particular to, to us. You know, ultimately, we're trying to understand this notion of psyche. We're trying to understand this something that's unknown. And we have all of these ways of expressing that kind of universal unknown, that idea that uh, uh, might be called the archetypal realm, or it might be called in religious uh, thought, the divine realm, that, that transcendent place. And what we're trying to uh, uh, do, we need some way of connecting with it. So all of our theories like Jungian psychology or Buddhism or Christianity or uh, any of the sciences are ways of connecting with that, ways of painting that unknowable something with 
sort of the particular and individual colors of that tradition. But the essence of what we're trying to do are not the are not those systems. They're just the means by which we try to connect to the essence. And so it, this is the, the, the really tricky piece around all of this, is we need those systems. We need the collective. We need, uh, I needed the Jungian tradition mm. to help me connect to that essence that Jung is pointing to, the 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 psychological reality, the, 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 the transcendent, the unconscious, the archetypal. Um, and I, I make use of that language and that tradition. But it's a window through which to connect to what is beyond it. And, and for me, that's the proper use of it. We need it, but we can't get caught on it. When it becomes about proving Jungian psychology, we've missed the point. When Jungian psychology propels us past itself to that greater dimension and that greater experience of life, then we're using it in the right way. I love that. So your book that's coming out this fall, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, looks at the importance of a symbolic life. And when right. I first entered analysis, that was all new to me, um, looking at things symbolically instead of literally, because mm -hmm. I have a science background and I didn't know how to look at things symbolically. That did not come naturally to me. And that is kind of how and why my analysis changed my life. It's made it more meaningful, a lot richer. And would you tell us a little bit about what is a symbolic life? Yeah, it, that's a, it, it's hard to encapsulate again, because we're talking about right. something that can't be known. And, mm -hmm. and that's really what the, I'm trying to uh, uh, speak to through the book, but, but in the nutshell, you know, the symbolic life is uh, what would be called something like a religious attitude toward life. Jung talks about the importance of a religious outlook for his patients. He said, you know, uh, all of his patients, every one of them after midlife, uh, fell ill because they lost or they didn't have a religious outlook. Um, they lost that thing that the traditions, the religious traditions, has given to people for, for millennia. And that they only got better by recovering a religious outlook. And he's not talking about a specific religion it can certainly happen within a specific religion, and it does for many people. But what he's talking about is uh, he, he gives his own particular definition to religion, and he says that it is a dependence on 
and submission to the irrational facts of experience. A dependence on and submission to the irrational facts of experience, the non-rational, the things that are ultimately unknown to us and affect us, impact us. Uh, You know, we've talked back and forth today about that, um, the difference between the, the name and the word and the concept and the experience. And the experience is powerful and it comes to us in a number of ways through dreams, through uh, uh, an engagement with imagination, but also just by being alive and the, the various uh, vicissitudes of life. Things happen to us um, that are not in our plan. We can't control what life does. And Jung suggests dependence on and submission to that, which is really extraordinary. He's not talking about mastering that. And in fact, he says you can't master it. It's stronger than us. The 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 deep uh, unconscious, the deep un, uh, the deep well of life is stronger than the ego. It's stronger than our plans and our desires and and what we want. Life happens to us, and we need a way to meet it, and we need a way to submit to it without being broken and destroyed by it. And it's in the symbolic life. It's in the engagement with the symbolic dimension. A symbol is the best possible expression for something that can't be expressed in any other way. So it's an experience that's unnameable, that, that, that is full of mystery. And we need a relationship to it. And it's the symbol that allows us to have a relationship to that. So the religious attitude that Jung was referring to is not about religion as we know religion. It is a religious attitude. That's something that that I want to emphasize here because there's some people, there's some listeners, I'm sure, that would be turned off by that statement um, that right? That a religious attitude is necessary, it's needed, it's what's lacking in the second half of life. It's not necessarily about religion as we know religion. It's about a re- having a religious attitude. Well, that's, that's right. That's right. I mean, Jung's idea of religion is different than our idea of religion, or at least how we've come to understand it. Um, the way we understand it is actually not necessarily how much of religion understands itself. But, you know, this is the this is the tricky terrain that we're in, mm-hmm. and this is part of what the, Jung is trying to point to. And what Jung's distinction is he talks about the difference between religion and a creed. So the creed is the particular belief system. The creed is the 
the identity of a particular religion. And religion is what we would normally think of as spirituality. It's what I've described here as the uh, dependence on and submission to the irrational facts of experience. What I would hear over the years in the kind of in the new age movement that I was involved with in the 1980s, oh, there's a difference between religion and spirituality. And so when we use the word religion, we would think of Catholic, Buddhist, Jewish, Methodist, Presbyterian. What is your religion? Right. And people would say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. So now here you're bringing in the distinction between a religion and a creed. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's very tricky, and, and it's important to be sensitive in here. One of the problems with I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, I'm spiritual but not religious, which is what, you know, why I call the book Religious But Not Religious. Mm-hmm. It, the, one of the problems with the spiritual but not religious is for some, maybe not for all, it can become a way of um, uh, kind of – building a sort of do-it-yourself spirituality that doesn't have any uh, um, structure or, or um, uh, way of uh, challenging the person. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're, if we're too loose with our spirituality, then we just take what we like and we get rid of the rest. And, you know, when Jung talks about submission and dependence on, uh, you know, the the transcendent and the numinous, uh, he's talking about an investment of oneself in a center of value that lies outside of the ego personality, an investment uh, in that center but but there has to be some kind of structure and i think this is the place where without necessarily uh um kind of confessing a particular creed we can make use of the religious traditions because they challenge us uh and and part of the reason to use the language of religion and religious uh, for me is to make it a little bit more difficult, to make it not easy, to to be in a struggle with it, to to wrestle with it, um, to to sit with the things that are difficult, uh, which is what Jung's psychology is about. Yes. Which is why I think that having a, a something like Jungian psychology and not just like whatever I sort of want to follow, Jungians are very uh, eclectic and they're open to many things but when you have a commitment then you're tested and you're tried and uh, it's only in that commitment where you come up against things uh, in the other and in yourself that that uh, are too fixed or too rigid and need to be challenged um, 
so those commitments and it, you know the religious commitment there's a lot that is uh you know people have been wounded by religion and uh so there are there are a lot of difficulties but but in a commitment uh you are uh you're sort of held your, your feet are held to the fire a little bit and you you are you look at things uh that you might avoid otherwise mm -hmm. and any kind of discipline whether it's Jungian psychology, whether it's a, uh, a religious vocation, whether it's to be a musician or an athlete or a physicist, requires that kind of commitment. You need to focus on something. You need to stay with it. You need to struggle with it. You need to move through the difficult challenges of it until you uh, really embody it so again it gets to this place of what we were talking about before with Jung and, and Jungians the point is to not just adopt something but to be able to live it not just to think something but to experience it I love what you said uh, that's so important it's something that I've not gotten anybody to talk about here on this podcast yet to, to struggle with things, to sit with things that are difficult, that is what we do in analysis. And yeah. that's not the feel-good type of therapy that I think most people want. Because when people think of therapy, they want something that's going to take them out of their pain. And I think that's why medication is so popular, because we want instant relief from that which we struggle with. Yeah, I uh, know. I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I you know, there's certainly uh, value to medication under certain circumstances, but part of our challenge, part of our the culture that we live in, is that we live in a consumer culture, right? Where we're very passive in terms of how we receive things. Uh, and we're used to being able to get what we want and uh, to get it fairly easily. And the avoidance of pain, which is understandable, actually only leaves us with the pursuit of pleasure, which doesn't go very deep, frankly. And, mm -hmm. and in many cases, it's more of an anesthetic. Mm -hmm. uh, it numbs us to experience Whereas to wrestle with things is to move into the aesthetic, right? And in the aesthetic, that means through the senses, we feel things, we experience it. Um, and uh, it, 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 it affects us. So we're not just passive consumers, but we are, we are engaged. We are participants. You know, everything can be used either as a means of substitution or as a means of participation. You can use anything this way. You can use analysis this way. Uh, as a means of substitution, uh, you, it's defensive. You keep things at arm's length. You know a concept. 
and therefore you don't have to encounter the reality of it. Uh, the poet David White has a, uh, I remember hearing him talk about this. He talks about the image of a wishing well. And he says, you know, people go to the wishing well and they throw coins into the wishing well and they wish for something. But the reason they throw coins in is so that they don't have to go down into the depths themselves. Mm. They want to be protected from that adventure. And, and maybe that's appropriate. But analysis and the symbolic life and a religious outlook take you into the depths of things and they open you to the full experience. And instead of just pleasure, you get the possibility of joy and aliveness. Your book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, will be released this fall by Chiron Publications, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Smith. Thank you, Laura. This is fun. Uh, it's great to talk to you, and uh, I appreciate, like I said, the, the invitation. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, Dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts or tune in. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. So with special thanks to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung